Well, we've reached a point in the life and times of King David that his punishment is in full swing. The abuse of power, the lust of the flesh, result in a season for him of humiliation and shame as the king, and not only for him, but for his loved ones. It's one thing to suffer for your transgressions. It's another thing when it impacts your, your wife and your kids. How many times have we seen the sins of the flesh, when allowed to run their course, result in ripping a family apart? When the guilty parties finally confess the collateral damage, and oftentimes the guilty parties confess when they have no options, <laughs> when they've been caught red-handed, when it's ready to go public, uh, then uh, the damage it can be far-reaching. Up to 2 Samuel chapter 14, King David loses his newborn child. That was the result of his affair, part of his punishment, and his firstborn son, Amnon, is murdered by his half-brother, Absalom, by the way. Absalom means son, uh, father of peace, if you can imagine, kind of ironic for his uh, legacy. Um, last week in chapter 14, we saw how this Absalom, or Absalom, uh, worked his way back into the trust of the king. And this week in chapter 15, he uses that grace for his own gain and undermines King David's throne. 2 Samuel chapter 15 says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever, when it, whenever anyone came in with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, he would call out to them and say, where are you from? And if they answered, we're from one of the tribes of Israel, then Absalom would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representation of the king to hear you. Complaint or case. And he would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Also, Whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. He behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. We'll read that he carries on this way for four years, schmoozing people cutting those off who were heading to the king to say, ah, let me hear your case. Oh, those that bowed down before him, uh, allowing them to bow down before him. What's his goal? It seems self-promotion and undermining, un undermining the king. A faithful and loyal servant of a king should have the mindset that they succeed when the king succeeds. They succeed when the country succeeds. And I think that's why there's something moving whenever you hear a, a, you know, a, a great military story of somebody who, uh, when you hear a soldier or a police officer or a firefighter, where, when the good of somebody else, like they'll risk their life for that, you know? And when they go like, 
It's not about me. It's about my country. There's something, you know, I know we're more loyal to the kingdom of God than we are to the United States of America as believers. I mean, our loyalty to Jesus is way up here comparatively. But among the nations of the world, uh, could there be a better place? You know, uh, I don't think so. And I think, uh, uh, I, so I can understand how somebody who, uh, who uh, walks and breathes in this kind of freedom and environment in our country could have great uh, admiration far above uh, some other things on this earth that are pretty vain and temporal. But, but it, so it, it can be kind of moving, is my point, of when someone says, you know, like, I do this all. I do it all again. Why? I do it all again for, for king and for country, you know. But our sinful human nature has a obsession or has a quick bend to tearing down others and building up ourselves. It's rare to find folks of character, integrity, and commitment to put others before themselves outside of the church. The, ideas, uh, the idea of others first is, I, I believe, one of the great and first markers in a life of a person who has come into the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is upside turning you right side up finally while you've been living in an upside-down world. That faith and, and, and a commitment to Jesus Christ radically changes those. And not because you have to. One of the great things about the kingdom of God is when you transition from, this is not a law that you have to, but in, in the freedom of Jesus, you choose to serve. You choose to put others before yourself. Because history is painted with the bloodstrokes of power-hungry, self-preserving individuals. What Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, I think some people go, sounds pie in the sky. Sounds like a, a, myth, a mythical utopia that could never be attained. When he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love... If any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." Now, if we lived in a society where everyone was looking after the interests of the others, I mean, it does sound a little bit utopian, doesn't it? It does sound a little bit like impossible. Like, where could you gather a group of people where somebody wasn't trying to climb to the top of that group of people and be recognized in some way? It's an age-old battle that's infected and affected every church business, family that has set out to prosper, self-promotion. And what is rare in this world of putting others before yourself is possible over and over and over again in the kingdom of God, others before self. And I believe the Spirit of God moving on the earth has protected mankind from, from himself. Like, imagine the world without the Spirit of God moving. Imagine a world without the conscience and, and the care of the collateral damage of your actions. Imagine the, 
the, the planet, the, the worst times and the worst places in history. Without the Spirit of God withholding, and, and I, I believe it would be a thousand times worse than the worst times that you can imagine in history. The worst times of genocide are still laced with survivors, are still laced with testimonies of people who refuse to give in to those inclinations, who refuse to, to uh, collaborate and cooperate, who, who hid, risked their own lives to hide somebody of a different color or a different nationality because they said, you know, that, that every person is precious in God's sight, that they resisted evil and stood up to seething dictators throughout history. And I know people think that we're living in terrible times. But imagine the time before the flood that Genesis describes that every inclination of man's heart was on evil at all times. Jonah and I were driving and we were just kind of talking about that because we were saying things are bad out there. Things are getting worse out there. Things are, you know, and then we, we started kind of reflecting on what would it be like to, to live in a time where every inclination of the heart was on evil at every time. You could not trust anyone. And Joan looked at me and said, nor could nor could anyone, nor could you even trust, you know, nor would anyone trust yourself. You know, like, like we all have this kind of natural, like, well, others are this way, but I wouldn't be that way. But, but what if every inclination of your thoughts were on evil all the time? And thus God destroyed mankind off the planet Earth and, and hit the reset button. But the Spirit of God is still moving on the Earth and and holding back every inclination of the heart from being focused on evil at all times. And the spirit of the world is, is a, aligned with self-promotion. And Absalom, Absalom seems to be the personification of that spirit. By the grace of the king, this prodigal who had murdered his brother is celebrated and restored to the kingdom. Restored as a prince. Not only restored, but trusted again. Given the authority again. And when given an inch, he takes a mile. And he assigns himself this chariot and this, uh, this entourage of 50 men who will go around on each side of him proclaiming his goodness to make a spectacle or grand entrance anywhere in the kingdom. And he acts as judge before the people, which was the role of the king. He allows the servants of Israel to bow down before him in reverence and submission, which was to be given to the king, not to him. And to what end? To prop himself up. To leverage that favor among people and to use that against the king who's bankrolling the whole, the whole party of servants. Will you stand with me? He's holding rallies at the expense of the king to create loyalty to himself, to foster anger toward the king. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us from self-promoters to those who build up others, from getting for ourselves to trying to further the kingdom of God. 
and from making a name for ourselves and to God be the glory. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for life lessons again today in 2 Samuel. We pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us, that we could worship together, uh, give together, serve together, love together in a way that would honor you. We pray for your continual hand upon this campus, this campus, this unique location, and uh, these uh, friends that have uh, joined the movement of the kingdom of God, that you would continue to invade the secret places of our heart and uh, examine us today, Lord, that we could walk in a, in a different kind of a spirit than the spirit of self-promotion, that we could be about promoting your great name, that we could be about uh, uh, those that are around us succeeding uh, and that... And that uh, that we could rejoice in that, in Jesus' name. Four years, Absalom, or Absalom, uh, is our English uh, transliteration. Four years of prepping the people. Four years of scheming against king and country. All along, acting like a worshiper of God acting like wanting to honor God, all along acting like he cared about king and kingdom, all along acting like he cared about others, but it was all an act. I know we use the word, I'm not going to get into it, the Greek of hypocrite, because it comes from the Greek word uh, hypokritas, and it means an actor. A lot of people think a hypocrite's when you do something that you tell others not to. No, that's called the frustration with the flesh, and, and, and sometimes you lose the battle. When Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. That's called battling sin, okay? So you're a hypocrite, though, hypocritas, was an actor, the person who portrayed someone else, the person who put the mask on, and the other person with the mask on, and they were, they were portraying because at one point, you know, women couldn't be on the stage even, so men would play women, and they'd have a little mask. You've seen those, right, those uh, Greek kind of old movies where they're on the stage, and someone's acting and portraying. That's, that's different than the way in our culture we use hypocrite as somebody who, who messes up when they have a moral compass, or when they try to tell others to live one way, and they're living another way. That's typically, I guess sometimes they can cross over, sometimes it, it can be an act as well, but, uh, but this is what Absalom is, is doing over and over again. He's acting like uh, somebody who has other people's intentions in mind, somebody who's trying to uh, be a, a faithful servant to the king, somebody who's trying to further the people of Israel, and all along, it's all about himself. The fake sincerity is taken to another level under the cover of worship to God. He has an elaborate plan to try to overthrow God's anointed and uh, established king. And surely this was part of David's punishment, or I don't believe these things could have aligned properly. I don't believe all the dominoes could have fell into place because of a, a brilliant manipulator like this. But I believe that his, his brilliant evil Lex Luthor kind of mind working for his own cause uh, was uh, 
helping to bring the final pieces of the punishment for David's sin. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. And while your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made, a, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in, in Hebron. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he went. And he sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Ab Shalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied him, and they, invited, they, they had been invited as guests and, and went quiet, quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and the following kept increasing. A message came to David. <coughs> the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. This is the guy, David. <clears throat> King David is the guy that women had recently wrote and danced songs about him. About him sang and danced in public. Saul has killed his hundreds, remember? And David has killed his thousands. Now David's personal, most trusted confidant, Ahithophel, has joined the opposition, has joined the coup, has joined the uprising against him. And as difficult and complex as we have read throughout First and Second Samuel, it was for David, who was anointed to be the next king and prophet of the Lord, to become the king of a unified, spirit-led people, for someone else to try to man manipulate it away from him into their own hands seems uh, impossible. But without the earned punishment of David... I don't believe Absalom's political tricks could have worked out the way they did. But he was a willing self-promoter that God used to exact his will. Verse 14, then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape. We must leave immediately or he'll move in and overtake us and bring ruin on us and, the city to the, and, and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever your Lord, uh, the king, chooses. That not only will we die, he's saying, but probably everyone in this city, probably, probably our, our friends and family that we love that live around us in the neighborhood, all of them will be put to sword too. So the king set out with the entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and Pelathites. They're kind of like, uh, uh, scholars believe they're kind of like a Swiss army, hired, hired mercenaries that served along with David and 
uh, 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. And then the king said to Zodak, take the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David has put two and two together. He doesn't try to keep the ark of the presence of God with him as some kind of token, as some kind of coverage, because he's conflicted, obviously, still battling the thoughts of his own sin, not knowing where is my punishment going to end, how far is God going to take this, and is now Absalom, the new king that God has anointed to do his work through. I don't know. But he knows that he has a price to pay for his affair with Bathsheba, for the murder of her husband, and for the cover-up. So the safe bet is to leave the ark of the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he says this, if God restores me, then he restores me. And if he does not, then he does not. But he's smart enough to know that if he takes things into his own hands, he could find himself fighting against God. And figuring out God in this moment for King David was difficult. He's not sure yet. He's smart enough to know God smart enough to his punishment go further than necessary. He's also smart enough to know that God has got him where he needed to be in the past. And if he needs to be back in Jerusalem, he's smart enough to know that God will align things and make it clear to him and speak through his advisors and his prayer time. And God will even intercept him with angelic voices and messengers if he needs to. David knows that God will get him where he needs to be and when he needs to be there. Verse 30 says, but David continued up the Mount of Olives Weeping as he went, his head was covered and and he was barefoot and all the people with him covered their heads, too, and were weeping as they went up. Kind of reminds me of one of those scenes when some CEO or somebody has been caught in some really embarrassing scheme and and they pull their jacket over their head and as they're heading to the police car, their handcuffs, and they they don't want anybody to see him like that. You know what I mean? Like, they're not going to let somebody take a picture of them and put it on front. Instead, they let somebody take a picture of them doing this, which is probably worse. But what a sad and humbling thing for King David, who one day, not too many months ago, he was dancing before the Lord with the people in front of the ark of the presence of the Lord. And a few months later, he's leaving the royal palace in shame. He's told the people are with Absalom. He's told he has an army. He has a following. And we find out that David's top confidant, David's head chief of his staff, David's number one guy that he looks to for what is the Lord trying to say is now sided with Absalom. One minute, the servants are waiting on you, hand and foot. And the next, you and your family are run out of town in shameful tears. 
from the majestic palaces of princes and lords to the dirt paths with nowhere to lay your head. David may have pulled out one of those old songs he wrote about King Saul for himself and maybe, maybe was singing a line of, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Could the king sink any lower? Actually, yes. As we read on in the next chapter, 16, the king approaches the city Bahurim. A man from the same clan of Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, Pelt, the son of Gera, and he cursed as David came by. He pelted King David. He pelted the king who in this time, the day prior, was a supreme ruler and dictator of, of this nation. I mean, he had the power to say who lives and dies at his word. No questions asked. And this guy comes out and curses him. He pelts the king and all the officials with stones. And though all the troops and the the special guard were on David's right and left as he cursed. Shemi said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel, you king of putrescence. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Wow. In public, in front of his family that's walking out in shame, in front of those uh, servants of his cabinet members and those that are close to him that, that, that aren't leaving his side, that are walking out into the wilderness not knowing what village they may stop at, not knowing where they may sleep that night. And then Abisha, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, what does this have to do with you? If he's cursing because the Lord said to curse him, if, if the Lord told him to curse David, then who can ask, why do you do this? And then David said to his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than just this regular guy? I mean, my own son is trying to kill me. Do you realize that? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shammai, Shammai was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him, and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Huh. Some, some kings arrived to small villages with ticker tape parades as they passed by. 
David got a dirt shower and pelted with stones. Because the people hadn't forgotten yet about all his sins. About his murder. And if Mr. Random on a hillside is connecting the dots, then obviously David is able to connect the dots. That he had been living a lie. He had been acting, worshiping, honoring the Lord, and being a hypocrite of the worst kind. Inspiring the, the kingdom of people to walk in righteousness while he is aligning and continuing to align the cover-up of his affair and the murder of her husband. The top advisors of our superstars and politicians, they know the best way to be restored into favor of the people after you've made a big mistake publicly is to make a public apology. But I believe that David's remorse and David's apology is not given um, with uh, a, a political agenda, but from his heart to honor God. Not apologize publicly because it's the smart thing to do politically, not because it's good PR. And David writes Psalm 51 after he's caught in this sin. After he's caught acting like everything was okay. After caught in the sexual affair. After caught arranging the murder and a blatant conspiracy to cover it up. And then God made it all known. And made it all public. And made sure that everybody knew. And made sure that David knew everybody knew. And the prophet warned David just a couple chapters ago, what you did in secret, I'm going to punish you openly. And I'm sure David is connecting the dots. And maybe it was during this, this time in his life that he wrote Psalm 51. The title of it is obvious. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Meaning, the people are never going to forget, Lord. They're never going to forget. They're never going to forget. It's always before me. I'm leaving the city in shame. I've lost all this stuff. And Mr. Random is still screaming it out in public. And hundreds of people are hearing him call me a murderer. I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are right in your verdict. 
and justified when you judge me, Lord. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. How about that? When you think about protecting the lives of the unborn. That God is imparting secrets of the kingdom and, and knowledge of him while we're still swimming around. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. I mean, you're getting down there when you feel like your bones are crushed. Godly sorrow is deep. It's a heavy weight. And one that can realign your spirit. He goes on, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I'll, I'll try to teach others. I'll try to teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you too, Lord. I'm turning back to you and I, and I hope others will too, Lord. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed. I'm guilty of the worst kind. I'm writing it down. I'm singing this song. I'm leaving this in the archives. I want... I want when the saints gathered together, and they did, and they sang songs like this. This was number 51 in the hymn book of the, of the Judaic history. Number 51. Let's sing that one again. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Contrite means shattered. So it's kind of a, it's really bringing a broken spirit, a broken and an even more broken heart. You, God, will not despise. Because the best offerings that you can bring to God are a broken and fractured heart that David describes an, a humility, a weight where it feels like his very inner bones are crushed, like his core, the core of who he is has been shattered. And I think when you get that low, you're thankful for salvation like no other time in your life. Like you, you, you can't connect at that level at any other time. Will you stand with me? And maybe just bow your hearts before the Lord. And I want to give you a few moments just to 
examine your own heart of the pervasive spirit of this world to promote self, to undermine authority in the workplace, to undermine those who are more popular and better looking and have more money so you can feel better about yourself. Boy, these are real, real things we battle. Lord, we just pray against that spirit right now that, uh, and we pray for a spirit of the kingdom of God that the Apostle Paul spoke about, that through Christ we could be people who care about others before ourselves. And Lord, may we learn also from King David's prayer that that when we are caught, that we look to you, God, that we pray and honest with you and admit. If David can admit his own bloodshed, if David can look in a prayer and write it down in a prayer and song and say, I've been a murderer. For, thank you, God, for taking away the guilt of my murder and still be allowed to serve, as we're going to see in the chapters coming, as anointed king and man of God again. He will be restored. That, God, you can restore every person around this world, no matter what their rap sheet might look like. And maybe there's nothing on record. <laughs> but, but, God, you know the record of the sins of our hearts and that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Your word says <laughs> that we're natural born sinners. But God, you're changing our nature. You're redeeming a group of people. And we thank you, God, for the high calling. Hear our hearts, Lord. Help us to be people who walk in humility so you don't have to humble us. And we can avoid some of this sorrow if we honor you and follow your word of truth in how we treat and live in this world, how we treat one another. In Jesus' name, and all the church said, amen. God bless you. You can find us online at falls.church or by searching Facebook at facebook.com slash fallschurch.sf.